What's up, Quicksilver? Uh, my name's Kyle Grow, and and this is really cool. This is um, this is just a beautiful way to start the this second year for for me at San Jose State and doing this RUF thing. I graduated seminary only only like a little more than a year ago, less than a year and a half ago, um, and so this is this is very cool. Uh, Jake had shared the kind of the the first half, one half of the inception of how. God orchestrated last year, and, and just briefly, just the, God writes beautiful stories, and um, there, there we, I, I knew two students, Donovan and another girl, before, like, you know, in June of last year, I knew, like, two students, and um, and this, uh, the other student, Elisa, who is, uh, who's in Sacramento, she got married, and so she's not often on campus, but um, she was just like, you know, a couple weeks before the semester started, she was just like, you know, when are we going to do the dinner? I was like, what, what dinner? Uh, she was like, oh, yeah, like a RUF last year, we used to do a dinner. I was like, oh, okay, cool, yeah, we're, good. we're doing a dinner. Um, and I was like, I don't know, when do you want to do it? She said, I can only do Wednesdays. I'm like, we're doing it on Wednesdays. Like, I only know two people. Like, we're doing it on Wednesdays. And just by chance, the volleyball thing was happening, and, and uh, God had orchestrated some, some beautiful things, um, both, both with what had happened with RUF in the past, and then, and then Caleb and Jake and others that have been on campus playing volleyball with a heart to reach students and, and their peers. And so I became, a, I became a Christian through RUF at, at Penn State. This is a big part of uh, what goes behind my, my heart for college students. Um, met my wife there. I want to introduce her briefly, Laura, and my son Thomas there. And so we met through RUF. Um, and, and, uh, through eight to 10 years, um, figuring this out, going through seminary, uh, and we're, we're here now. And so this is year two for me, and the first year has been just a beautiful, wonderful joy. And, and again, like the way the spirit has orchestrated things, there's a, there's a movement of God happening and, and, uh, and it's just very exciting. This is just like I said, a beautiful way to start this first year, second year, but the beginning here. Um, so, you know, a lot of students on campus are lonely, and then and they're looking for connection, as Jake shared a bit. And for that, that's kind of what the volleyball and dinner and discussion is doing, right? It's kind of serving that as as we talk deep, you know, as deeply as we can get in a 16-person dinner discussion. Um, we're, we're serving that. But then there's also students that are lost, and they're, and they're looking for answers to life's questions. And I'm going to try and do a Tuesday uh, series on music, asking cool questions um, through, through songs. So that'll, that'll be pretty fun. And, and lonely and lost, these are two kind of major demographics of students at, on this campus. And if you're here today, you might, you might feel that way, whether you're just beginning at, at Quicksilver or at church in general, or whether you've been here a long time feeling lonely and lost because um, you're newly assaulted by life's problems uh, or doubts, uh, entering a new phase of life, hardships you don't know how to deal with. Uh, this, this message is for you, okay? So um, no, matter where you want, no matter where you are today, this message is very simple. Uh, God is for you. God is for you. That's the point I want you to take away. I want you to know that God is for you. And simple, uh, simple, Theses, uh, two simple points, okay? So two points, our present anxiety and our confidence. 
our present anxiety and our confidence, each of these pointing to the idea that God is for us. He is for you. And then over these points, I'll share, uh, I'll share a story of a time I went to the hospital. I'll share a picture of Jesus in God's courtroom and then a story about Thomas. So I'm going to read this text and then, and then we'll jump in. Um, this is Romans 8, 31 to 39. This is the word of the Lord. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, he, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, on the contrary, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is God's Word. So, as I said, uh, uh, RUF at Penn State, my senior year, I failed a class, uh, fall of my senior year, and I never had any internships, I had a bad GPA, and I had no job prospects, but it was okay, because I wanted to be a pastor. Um, and, uh, and so I also, though, I also wanted to marry Laura. I wanted to marry my wife, and, and she did have a good GPA, and she, she graduated on time. And, and, then, and she uh, also had a job by the time I graduated, a semester late. She had already had a job in Ohio. And so I graduated, I put the pastor stuff on hold, and I, I moved to Ohio to, to get married and to follow Laura at Smucker's. She worked for Smucker's at first making coffee uh, Folgers. And, then, and this threw me into a weird existential crisis. I am often in existential crises. Um, and, and these days they call it the quarter-life crisis. You leave college, you find out um, you're thrust into independent life where you're supposed to have it kind of all together. And uh, you have to find a new church if you uh, move to a new city, make new friends. Student loans start having to be paid back. Rent and uh, retirement. Arden's already shaking his head because he's, he's out, freshly out. And then, uh, and then, so, okay, so then getting married was also weird for me. Um, when you get married, you're making, like, at least a 40-year commitment, right? And so in my brain, um, yeah, I'm just thinking, like, in my brain, I'm like, 40 years, Okay, 40-year career, 40-year marriage, um, and I start thinking about in terms of 40 years about everything, and, uh, and like, uh, we're going to live in this boring Ohio town for 40 years. We're going to be in this, like, small one-bedroom apartment for 40 years. I'm going to be in this boring office for 40 years, um, barely getting to know my coworkers. I'm going to be in this boring Ohio church for 40 years, and, and so and, and even, like, just, I'm going to be stuck with my pride and my lust and my, uh, my shame 
and my anger for 40 years. I'm just going to be dealing with all that for 40 years? Uh, and so all that stuff kind of, I just started thinking, <laughs> Thomas just noticed me, I think. Um, I start thinking like 40 years. This is like, I, it started to um, make me worried. And, and one night I was having like horrible chest pain. I was very worried. And, and then I went to the hospital. And nothing was wrong. This is like the most anticlimactic story. There was just nothing going on. Um, it was just anxiety. I mean, it, it was like, I was just allergic to Ohio, I think. Um, but like, but nothing, nothing external was wrong. It was actually like a very comfortable beginning of our marriage and our, and our adult life. Um, and so like nothing was wrong except that I had forgotten that God was for me and that God knew what he was doing and that he knew how to write um, my story. Sometimes we just get so much in our, he- in our heads that we, we tell ourselves stories that aren't true. We're making predictions about the future with no real basis in reality. And we, f- we forget that God is for us. Um, all, I, I, w- I would suggest that all our present anxiety is driven by this belief that God is not for us. We get so absorbed in uh, the present problems that the future becomes clouded. And then we even actually start to forget the past because life in Ohio was actually comfortable. I'd been through way worse things in my past, but I, I figure somehow God can't be bigger than this. And so, Paul too, Paul too had been through much worse. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword. Surely these are worse than the, the middle-class suburban anxiety that I was experiencing. Um, Paul had been through, through all these trials, and, and he's, he was far more legit than I am, and yet he wrote these verses of confidence. None of them can thwart God's designs. And Paul knows this, and, and he knows our, our constant tendency to just get worked up in our heads uh, about things, that we, little things, little things, and we forget what's important. At this point in the book of Romans, we're, we're in chapter 8, and you may have, uh, may have, this may be your first time here, you may have forgotten what the point is, uh, you may have just forgotten what Fred taught since he began the series in April. It's okay, okay? Um, Paul knows this, and, uh, and I'll, I'll summarize, but we're just we're so often in our heads that we, we kind of forget the main point. And so, um, you know, what is tying everything that we've read so far in Romans together? This, it's, this, is, this is the section. Uh, so chapters 1 through 3, I'll summarize briefly the book. Chapters 1 through 3, summarize like this. No one is righteous. Chapters 4 and 5, peace with God comes through faith in Jesus. And then uh, 6, 7, and 8 are, are chaos. Um, like, they're, they're just all over the place. There's a lot of objections. They're complicated. And, the, and it's, you know, Paul's being real about the Christian life. He, he asks these questions, these rhetorical questions. What should we say then? Are we, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Just like a complicated, there's complicated stuff in there. What, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? What then should we say that the law is sin? And, and through chapters 6 and 7, there's these... Um, questions that Paul is working out. And then, uh, and if you remember the answers, they're, they're nuanced, they're introspective, and, and like, frankly, complicated. And I like nuanced, introspective, and complicated. Um, it, it, I also like being self-absorbed. So, uh, so that, you know, this can turn into, if we read those chapters sometimes too closely or for too long, 
it can turn into like this navel gazing. Um, are we familiar with navel gazing? It's like uh, your belly button kind of peering into your belly button. Um, we're just, uh, Google defines it, a self-indulgent contemplation of oneself at the expense of the wider view. We're just like kind of what's going on with me, kind of right here. Um, and so sometimes like our, our sins can loom so large, we're trying to deal with them and, and we worry because we can't change and we get anxious and, and then we do one of two things. We do one of two things. We pronounce judgment on ourselves. Very common. I'm stupid. I'm lazy. I'm fat. I'm weak. I'm, I'm worthless. I shouldn't have said that. Nobody wants me. I shouldn't bother them with my problems. I deserve to fail this test. I deserve to be treated that way. We, we pronounce judgment on ourselves. And the, and the other way is we kind, of, we kind of assume that God is pronouncing judgment on us as well. And... and um, and I think we see this in, in the principle of karma. Um, karma is not a Christian principle. Do we know that here? Karma is just not, not a Christian principle. Um, when you start seeing unrelated events, wildly unrelated events, and interpreting them as if they're punishment for something you've done wrong or, or a reward for something you've done right, uh, that's not how God works. Like, oh, I, I dropped my phone and it broke. Uh, it must be because I lied to my girlfriend last night. That's not how God is doing things. Um, or like, oh, I got towed. It's probably because I put the recycling in with the regular trash. It's just, that's not what God's up to. Christian karma is like an oxymoron. And then thinking that God's mad at you for something, so uh, He's going to take it out on you in some un unrelated, random way. Um, God doesn't work that way, and, and, and God's not mad at you. God's not mad at you. Um, put this back down. So, I said, I said before, um, all our present anxiety is driven by the belief that God is not for us. All our anxiety, okay? So, like, we have problems, we're going to have problems. Um, they can serve a purpose, but uh, our anxiety about those problems is driven by, by belief that God is not for us. So, uh, verse 35, you know, Paul, Paul is, as I read this verse, Paul is uh, aware of the problems that we're going to face, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. They're not, they're not God's tools of punishment. We might feel like they are. Uh, the psalmist feels like they are. You'll notice in verse 36, if you have your Bible out, is a quote. It's, uh, it's set in as a quote in verse 36. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul, Paul is suggesting, is this how it's going to be? Um, are we going to be like sheep to be slaughtered? Um, Psalm 44. Some of you may be familiar with this text. Only a month ago, John Kim preached this, uh, this psalm in the psalm series over the summer. And so, Paul picks this up, and he's kind of picking up the problem in Psalm 44. And he, again, like he, he says, like, is this kind of how it's going to be? Is this the situation in Psalm 44 going to apply now? Is that going to be what it's, going, what it's like. When the sword comes or all those problems, are we going to have to face it like the people in Psalm 44? All right, not all of us are there. And again, I've already uh, suggested we forget pretty easily what God is doing. Um, and so, let me remind you what's going on in Psalm 44. I, again, as I summarize Romans, a very quick summary of Psalm 44. Verse 1, God's people have heard the wonderful deeds from the days of old. They remember Egypt, they remember Jericho, and then, uh, but now, 
in verse 9, the people are, uh, quote, rejected and disgraced, even though, verse 17, they had not forgotten God and they'd not been false to His covenant. And then so they ask in verse 24, why do you ignore, why does God, why do you ignore our affliction and oppression? He's, the psalmist is saying, God, are you really for us? Are you, are you really for us? like the way you were to our forefathers or our ancestors? Are you really for us like the way you say you are? It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't seem like it. And, and let me tell you, it's okay to doubt. If you're not feeling God right now, it's okay. Um, it's okay to have doubts. And, and I would suggest, um, I would not suggest, I would just encourage you to go home and, and read Psalm 44. Uh, just own Psalm 44. Pray and lament it and cry. Uh, cry this, this cry that Paul quotes. Say, like, I feel like a sheep about to be slaughtered. I feel like I'm going to lose my job or, or my wife. I'm going to fail a class, and it's uh, just all going to be bad for me from here on out. Um, God, I don't know if you're there. The psalmist prays that prayer. Um, we're allowed to pray that. Go home and pray, and it, it could take months. It could take years. Um, I've, I feel like I've been praying for one or two issues uh, in this way, not in these exact words, but one or two issues, and it feels like I'm getting nothing from God. Um, but I have confidence that, uh, that with Paul, uh, God's going to answer this, okay? God will answer this prayer, and, uh, and he, He'll do it in His time, as He did it in the time that Israel, Israelites were waiting for an answer. It took hundreds of years for that nation to receive an answer from God. And so, that's our, our present anxiety Point, point number one, okay? Our, our present anxiety driven by the belief that God is not for us, but He is, okay? God is for us. I want to show you this. We can have confidence about it, like a lot of confidence about it. Uh, so, so, point two, like I said, two-point sermon. So, last point, um, our confidence. So far, okay, um, I'm Reformed, so... I feel like I've barely touched the text, um, and I want to get you into this text, uh, and I want, you to, I want you to see what Paul is doing, and I want you to see what Paul has to say for us. Uh, and like I said, kind of as a Reformed person, we're supposed to be kind of stodgy and very close to the text. Um, but but let, me, let me show you this. This section is beautiful. It, um, it, is, it is Paul's rhetorical climax, this kind of rhetorical questions he's going to ask, this climactic section uh, to the book so far. And, and I kind of spent so much time as I did on the first, first point because you can't separate this text from the one before it, uh, from all the ones that came before it. Verse 31, he asks us, there were three rhetorical questions he had asked in six and, chapter 6 and 7, and he asks a fourth rhetorical question, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? He summarizes um, these things, everything that came before this point in the message. Um, he's pointing back to his whole argument so far. And in here, uh, in, in these things and the rest of this passage, in sweeping strokes with great flourishes, Paul reaches the height of his message and then he makes this closing argument. He makes this closing argument. God is for you. And if God is for you, as I, uh, as, you know, Paul's saying this, if God's for you, and the way I've told you about in these 
preceding seven or eight chapters, then these four things are true. With four rhetorical questions, Paul builds up the confidence that we have in Christ. All these questions answered in the negative. Um, we'll look at each of these questions, but, um, but first, Im- imagine you're in a, a courtroom. You're walking down the aisle, past the gallery of onlookers, and you take your seat at the table for the defense. You walk down the aisle, you turn left, you sit down for the defense. And in the hands of the judge is a book. It's a book of every deed you've ever done. And you realize you died, and, and you're called to make an account of your life, and you're, you're sitting on trial. And um, your friends are there, your grandparents, your children, your coworkers, your ex-girlfriends, enemies, grocery store clerks, people you cut off in traffic, uh, your middle school teacher. Um, everyone's there, and, and he, Jesus is there, and he's... Uh, he sits, he's sitting actually across from you at the table for the prosecution. I think this is the picture that Paul paints for us in not so many words when he asks these questions. So let, me, let me show you this. Paul, assuming, kind of acting as, uh, as your defense attorney, he makes his closing argument. He's said everything he's said so far, and he makes his closing argument. In verse 33, he kind of begins this. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And in other words, who will indict or accuse the defendant? Kind of opening up the, the possibility, right? Who, who will bring a charge? And like the woman caught in adultery, he says, let him, who, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And all the would-be accusers of your life have to sit down. And one by one, sitting down until it's only Jesus remaining standing. And he says, neither do I accuse you. It's God alone. Like, God alone has the authority and the right. God alone is worthy to accuse or, if he chooses, dismiss the case against you. And he doesn't bring charges. So, Jesus says, we're going to drop the charges. And if that's not enough, Paul continues, who will condemn? Condemn meaning pronounce a sentence, right? Like, who will, uh, you've been found guilty, who will condemn or pronounce sentence. And Jesus, who had been standing on the side of the prosecution, He walks over and He, and he takes up the cross that was waiting for you, um, the, the tool and instrument of execution, and He takes it and He dies and returns, only this time He comes to your side. And He walks up to the bench, and then He begins to advocate for you and intercede for you. He's not going to bring charges against you, and then He takes your punishment and He joins your side, and he, he satisfies for all the sins in, in that book. The book is closed, because that doesn't belong to you anymore. And then, uh, and then just in, beautiful, in a beautiful imagery here, um, Paul shifts kind of focus. He shifts his verbs. At first, he's using law and uh, legal verbs, and he shifts, and the trial the picture here changes. It's like, um, I was just kind of picturing this, like Cinderella meets Legally Blonde, okay? The courtroom changes, and like what was a criminal trial in a drab courtroom changes, and, and it's now a church, and it's resplendent with flowers and decoration, and it's, uh, and it's ready for a wedding. And, uh, and Paul now 
uh, not the defense attorney, but the officiant, he pronounces in a modified form of verse 35. Modified form of verse 35. What God has joined together, let no man separate. I now pronounce you husband and wife. The scene changes. And, and Paul is, it, like, you can read these as vows. These, none of these things could possibly tear God away from you. you. You cannot be separated from God. What started as an anxious trial ends with an unbreakable wedding vow. This is, this is how it's going to be. Jesus is doing this for you. Uh, God is for you. And, like, if you think, I, I guess, if you think the, the images over the top are kind of out of the blue, let me just direct you to uh, suggest you go look later at Revelation 20 and 21. So, I'm not going to read them now, but the last section of 20 and the first section of 21, I think, is John's version of sh- showing the same exact scene. Um, but like Paul's imagined courtroom just really stripped it down to bare verbs uh, of this uh, forensic legal kind of thing that's happening. Uh, admittedly sparse in illustrative detail. I've added all of John's kind of imagery, and, and yet we still see Jesus around the courtroom taking up all the roles of this case against your life, and He doesn't prosecute and he joins you on the defense, and he, he witnesses on your behalf, and then pronounces judgment on himself, and he takes the punishment. Like, Paul kind of mixes all these metaphors because Jesus does it all. This, this is, it's all about him, and he is your eternal advocate. It's, it's unshakable. There's no, who will do, like, who else could possibly have standing to say anything against you? And Paul's whole argument, everything throughout this book so far, can be summarized, God is for you. Do you, you realize all that complicated stuff of the book of Romans, God is for you. That's what Paul wants you to know. And if He's for you, who could possibly be against you? If you read Romans like me, if you're anything like me, you're so much in your head, um, and you got to get out of there. He, this is really simple. He gave you His only Son. He gave you His only son. Why would he not also give you everything else? What could be more important to him than than his son? Um, He will not uh, hold back his own son even when when Jesus wanted to come and save you. You think he's going to be like cheap about kind of just material blessings or or, uh, death, life, heavenly rulers, earthly rulers, things present, things that come. Nothing can separate, nothing, nothing in creation, nothing created can separate you from the Creator. <clears throat> um, I'm going to close with this, this last thought here. Um, I want you to believe this. I want you to know that God is for you and that He has given us the ultimate sign of Christ on the cross. He has not been silent and actually entered into history as, as uh, God in human form, and He entered into history to, to say something pretty definitive and to do something pretty definitive about our sin and our plight and problem in this world. And then He, he declares over you that you, are, um, that you are clean, that you are justified, uh, that you are His Son, and he, and, he, and he says, I am for you. So, I'm going to close with this, this last picture here. One day, as a, a small child, Thomas came home from school, and, and he gave, his, gave a paper to his mother. And he said, Mom, 
my teacher gave me this paper, and he told me, only you are to read it. What does it say? And her, her, she read it, she opened it, and, um, and her eyes welled with tears as she, she read the letter that said this, your son is a genius. This school is too small for him and doesn't have good enough teachers to train him. Please teach him yourself. He, uh, you know, quickly quit school and was raised uh, homeschooled by his mom. And, you know, many years after his mom had died, he became one of the greatest inventors uh, this country had ever seen. Uh, he perfected the phonograph, the alkaline battery, and the light bulb. And when he was going through his closet later in life, he found this folded letter from his old teacher, and, uh, and he had never read it. He opened it, and he found that the message was not what his mom had read. It, it, what it actually said, it said, your son is mentally deficient. We cannot let him attend our school anymore. He is expelled. And he, he wrote in his diary, Thomas A. Edison was a mentally deficient child whose mother turned him into the genius of the century. The words and, and judgments that are said over you have the power to, to change your life. They have the power to change your situation, your perspective about things. Um, and so the question then is, what does God say over your life? He says, I'm for you and I'm not against you. He says, I love you and I, I will not leave you. And then in Revelation 21, kind of the section after this little courtroom scene, he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Behold, I'm making all things new. Amen. Um, well, please pray with me, uh, and then we'll uh, transition to song. Lord Jesus, um, sometimes, sometimes we get so much in our head that we um, take our eyes off you. We're looking so much at our own problems, God, that we um, forget that you've said something pretty definitive about them, that you were bringing us home. You've justified us. You uh, are building us up in sanctification, uh, and you will most certainly glorify us uh, when we come to you. Lord Jesus, thank you for this blessing. May, the, may your word um, go out forth from this room in joy and blessing to our peers, our family, our neighbors, our classmates. Lord Jesus, bless us this, uh, this morning, um, and amen.